ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Racism took 500 years to build. It's going to take a long time to unbuild, but the fact that it's built and created means that we can undo it. Racism at work. Big topic, right? And it can be tricky, touchy and traumatic. It's complex because, as you will hear, it's a systemic issue. The common theme that we tended to have was that all these individuals that we're working for were reporting the same experiences of racism or marginalisation. So we found that because there is a common theme, it, it, it kind of means that this is not an individual issue. We need to be working with the workforce. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and on This Working Life, we're looking at how to build an anti-racist workplace, from education to understanding and addressing the psychological impacts of racism. What we aim to do is just educate and then provide some awareness and then provide some skills and support and how we can kind of navigate this. So it turns out that education is a super critical ingredient in building an anti-racist workplace. Dr Neil Minnie Fernando researches race and feminism and is an adjunct at Griffith University. She also consults with organisations to create anti-racism strategies and education programs. Neil Minnie, we hear so much about diversity and inclusion, but your focus is more on racial literacy. What is that and why is that important? The key thing is we talk about racism, but we don't really understand what race is. Not even what race is, we know it's biological, that's been debunked, you know, we know that people aren't different, haven't got different intellectual capacities, that's all been debunked, but the impact of it sticks, it's so deep, it's so connected to colonialism. It's more important that we know what race does rather than what it is or isn't. And we can't address racism unless we understand how race was constructed in this country. So we have to follow the theory of Aboriginal understandings and experiences of race because they have literally experienced it from the beginning of colonisation and they have been fighting it ever since. So all our laws and our structures are directing everybody towards a particular aim, which is to put white supremacy, you know, white people at the top of the ladder of what's human and everybody else has a place along that right to the bottom. So that is the hierarchies that race constructs in order to make our differences matter in ways that will benefit certain people at the same time as depriving others of their rights. Race is about putting somebody down. Race is about creating those ladders of upper and lower. It's about creating its active thing. So racial literacy teaches us about what race does and it also gives us like concepts. You know, sometimes we don't have the words because in Australia the race has been, it's very difficult to talk about. You, you, you don't want to talk about it. So we don't have the words. We know the feeling we have the experience, obviously, if we've been racialized negatively. We don't have the words. So we need to learn grammar, you know, how it all happened in this country, who are the people that have been marked and targeted, and who are the new ones coming in that push other people who have been racialized in the past up that ladder towards whiteness. So racial literacy gives us terms, it unpacks concepts, and it teaches us about the meanings that are coded inside words that seem perfectly innocent, like culture. Culture is always coded with not white people don't have a culture. You know, culture always belongs to multicultural people. Why 
can it be so helpful compared to the other things that we might be doing around bias training, for example? And how does it answer that question? Actually, I'm, I'm not racist, so I'm not sure how this can really apply to me. So people immediately think anti-racism is about me not being a racist, an individualist attitude and a prejudice that we can train out of people. You can do that training, but the minute you go into an institution, you seek help or you go to a healthcare institution or you call the police for domestic violence, you're entering into a system where racism is baked in, right? So it's baked into the system. So no matter how not prejudiced you are, no matter how conscious you are or unconscious, racism is reproduced and you will be racialized again. You'll get an unfair treatment. So we've got to understand that the interpersonal thing, that what we, most of the racism that we deal with is on an individual interpersonal level. We need to have better literacy to understand that even if we're not inside racist, we need to understand that our practices and our organizations might be and how do we do active anti-racism. So unconscious bias, it's not a thing. I think a better way to read about, to talk about it, is what Charles Mills would say, it's a willful ignorance. We all know, because we feel bad, why people who might, might feel bad about racism, they don't want people harmed. A lot of us don't want that, but we are not willing to bring it right up to the, to the front. So change, and one of the harms of actually doing sort of weak or diluted or only interpersonal forms of anti-racism means that people think they've done the work. You can do a one-hour training online, you can do a three-hour module, and therefore you can tick that box and say the organisation is no longer racist. So it's what they, it becomes performative. So you can have nice pictures up with diverse staff, but the racism doesn't get touched. Can we look at some specific areas? So let's look at recruitment for leadership positions. A recent field experiment from Monash University found that people with ethnic sounding names were around 57% less likely to be offered leadership roles than those with English names and 45.3% less likely to be offered non-leadership positions. What are some effective ways of combating racism, particularly in this recruitment process? And apparently blind CVs are not enough. Hmm. They're not enough, actually. And we have known about this for a long time. It's only that, like I said, the data is coming in Australia now. So that's good. We're catching up. However, it's not enough. And underneath all that is racism. Okay, so underneath all that is racism, because there have been stereotypes built up about different minority groups. I find that in the circles that, you know, in organisations that I'm in, all the leadership is white, all the senior leadership pretty much all the readership and executives is white. So there's something stopping people of colour getting through, yeah? So one of the key in, interesting things that have come up is called the broken rung. So we've, we know a bit about the glass ceiling, that women and particularly women of colour can't get to the top because there's a glass ceiling. Bef way before the glass ceiling, there is that crucial step between middle and junior management to executive and senior. That is where the rung is broken, so we need to focus our attention at that point. But the key thing is to think about the employment situation as a pipeline from attraction to the recruitment, to the, the, the progression, retention, and looking at exit. So if you think about that as a journey, right, of a person in a workplace. And so what we need to do is maximise the, the first of the diverse pool of candidates to start with. And you've got to have affirmative action and have more permanent ongoing contracts, all the things that are actually wrong with the whole workforce 
actually affect people who are racialized worse. They don't have the same buffers to get over it. Uh, one of the other things that's quite important is postcode and where you studied, you know, the institution where you studied. That's also an important thing. What are the fa- forces that push you into that position where you can't move, you can't progress, you can't get that promotion? And it's usually three key master categories, race, class, gender. And then you have lots of others like ableism as well. So intersectionality is a very important tool for doing anti-racism work. I'd love to know, in your experience, what has worked? First of all, dialogue. Spaces to have these kind of conversations. Number one. So any management or any organisation says we can we we really need to address this. We can invest in time and space and expertise. What I do is when we actually explain and unpack and let people explain for themselves what they understand in a safe conditions. That is when we get progress because the dialogue itself gives a good account that's truthful that makes sense to people. Number one is make the space to have the conversation. Number two is take an approach of layered learning. So we we talked a little bit about HR and recruitment. There are complaint procedures are so important. And, you know, that idea that we have to build a different uh, uh, culture within the organisation, that will take time. So in the first one, to work through policy, you know, look at the language, look at the communications, what kind of images you're putting up. Are you faking it? Are you performing? Yeah, we're a diverse organisation. So Sarah Ahmed writes so perfectly on this stuff. She called, if you read two books of hers, called On Being Included and Complained, you will see how the whole organisation impetus is to protect itself. So we as racialized staff and workers need other means to protect us ourselves and our rights. So HR complaints policies are so not fit for purpose if you don't understand racism. So the complaint and grievance, it could be your manager. So I've written a race, you know, we've worked together with staff to do a race response policy. And what I have found is that it works very well when we're talking about the client being racist, but within the organisation, how do we call out racism or when it's a staff member, when it's an executive, when it's a board member, higher up you go, the less accountable. So that's where we need to put the work in, having accountability measures and understanding what that means. What else have you found helps Nilmini? A couple of other things that I've found work really well is an ongoing kind of embedding. So embedding it over time. So you might spend six months on the consultancy just developing the policies, protocols, things that people can follow that is in collaboration through these dialogues, right? Then you can have a bit of time where we can come in once a month and just check how things are going. The other thing that works really beautifully, it's the last thing I'll talk about even though there's more, is reflective practice. Okay, so by with somebody who knows what they're doing. So you have a reflective practice session as a team. So it's beautiful for the DEI team, for example. So over a period of time, have a place where people can unpack incidents. Sometimes you need to work with management, if they're especially white people, separately. And also that while you're learning about racism, you might make a lot of mistakes. So you don't want to, you know, re-racialize the because of your own lack of knowledge. So having cohorts, what we call affinity groups, is also a really good measure. So I think we can't just rely on one strategy. We have to have a suite of strategies. Education and racial literacy helps us understand how racism is constructed. But what about the psychological impacts of racism? My name is Tigis Kabidi. I am a co-founder of Polar Practice. I am also a senior trauma counsellor. 
Tigger's polar practice has a focus on culturally responsive psychology, which takes into consideration a broad understanding of the different aspects of a person's identities, as well as their environments, including the workplace. Can you talk about the psychological impact of racism in the workplace? So racism in the workplace can have significant psychological impacts on individuals who experience it, as well as, you know, the broader ramifications for overall work environment and organisational culture. So if we start with the individual, the psychological impacts can can look like stress and anxiety, can look like low self-esteem, depression, psychological distress, can result in, in people feeling like they're imposters, like they're frauds, that they shouldn't be able to do this work because that their success came out of luck instead of something like their abilities. And in terms of the, the organisational ramifications, it can result in uh, decreased productivity of staff because if employees are preoccupied with experiencing racism, dealing with the effects and their their productivity will be impacted. We often notice a high turnover. You often notice that people who experience racism may choose to leave and that means that organisations losing valuable talent and which has financial implications on recruitment and training. Also, with diversity comes creativity, different people, different ideas, doing different things. So your organisation is losing that way as well. So what's your advice to those who would like to report racism in the workplace? Where should they go? I guess it's case by case because everyone's experiences are going to be different. And depending on what your experiences of racism are, because racism can look quite different um, in different settings. Um, It can be something like microaggressions, but it can go all the way up to harassment and discriminatory behaviour. So I think there's a variation in terms of what your options are from speaking to your manager and speaking to HR, making a report, speaking to your union, engaging in fair work or speaking with a lawyer. I think the the, the best advice I often give people is, first off, understand your safety, understand what context you're in and plan it out for yourself and speak to a GP if you're experiencing psychological distress because of it. There are apps that you can utilise, like Not Me, it's like an organisational HR app which has been used in the past to report racism, to report kind of organisational issues and to be a whistleblower in a way that doesn't disclose your name. What also can work is utilising EAP as a way to kind of like deal with some of your emotional experiences so that we can create a plan. So you mentioned EAP, the Employee Assistance Program, which offers workers free counselling. But your practice has done something really interesting with EAP. You've gone beyond individual counselling and you use it as a springboard for organisational level workshops. Tell us about that. Now, traditionally, EAPs often focus on individual remedies rather than addressing larger context of the work environment or the corporate climate. And we found through our practice that whilst individual counselling is amazing and can be really helpful, you can't out-therapy racism. What you can do is you can provide therapeutic support to someone who is experiencing racism. So that might look like managing distress, figuring out coping strategies, figuring out a plan, but that doesn't necessarily stop it. And what stops it is organisational change and interventions. And 
what we do at Paula is we support organisations through the use of EAP to develop tailored uh, workshops um, such as the, our anti-racism workshop, but also our burnout um, inter- intersectionality workshop in addition to individual counselling as a way to begin those steps in creating organisational change because without that, people who are the most racially marginalised will continue to experience racism and it's really important to note that anti-racism workshops should be part of a broader strategy that in, that includes ongoing efforts and that should be accompanied by concrete policies, accountability measures and systemic changes to create lasting impact. And that's what creates a truly inclusive organisational culture. So we've heard that wellbeing workshops as well as anti-racism workshops are some tools we can use to address racism in the workplace. But I'm interested to find out more about the connection between burnout and racism. My name's Caroline Cal. I'm a very proud Barbara woman. I hail from Innisfail, Herberton, Atherton, but I'm born and raised here on Coolin Country. I'm the founder and managing director of Blackwater Coaching and Consulting. Caroline, for the past couple of years, through your coaching and consultancy, you focused on burnout. What is the relationship between racism and burnout, particularly for First Nations people? For the First Nations communities and particularly the women that I work with, we know that labour and work and care extends far beyond the nine to five. What we see is an intersection rather between the blurring of boundaries between home, the workplace and the work that's just expected of us living in an anti-black world. For us, when we look at its relationship with, with racism and discrimination, there's sort of three interrelated factors. The first is that Stress and burnout and trauma are inherently linked. And a lot of the people that we work with experience many forms of trauma within the workforce, at homes, things like complex trauma, intergenerational trauma, which is the links between our ancestors and uh, our previous generations. We also see complex and systemic trauma and vicarious trauma because many of us are working within close proximity to our communities. So that's the first factor. The second is, is that we experience more stresses more often. And that is because many of our workforces don't have adequate anti-racism. They don't have adequate well-being and um, other supports to really address, you know, power, privilege, bias, and how that manifests in interpersonal relationships. We're also taking on far more of what we call this collective load. We're caring for more people more often. So by virtue, we are exposed to more stresses more often. And this creates a fairly insidious vacuum where the women that I work with are experiencing chronic levels of stress, often acute or or chronic illnesses associated with those stress um, responses. And much of this is very much interrelated. And so the most useful place to start now that you've identified this is to help First Nations communities, especially women, support their own health and well-being. You have some workshops to do this. What do they include? 
So we we run a flagship program called Black Burnout, and it kind of looks at five main pillars. All of our work is centered in what we call in our community Aboriginal social emotional well-being. And we know that the definition of health isn't just the absence of disease or dysfunction. It's how we show up in our families, our relationships, our society, how we feel fulfilled. All of these things contribute to good health. So we do a lot of psychosocial education around understanding stress and how it manifests you know, physiologically. A huge part of what we do in our work is helping people reacquaint with their values and their sense of self, not the conditioning that we've received as, you know, females or First Nations people or maybe the values that we get assigned to us in a corporate environment, but who we are, what's our identity, what's our purpose, how do these things make us, you know, feel fulfilled and to self-actualize. The other piece that we look at is, you know, our beliefs, our stories. Um, You know, we have on average 6,000 plus thoughts a day and many of them are repeated thoughts from the previous days, 90% of which are negative. So we, we do a lot of work on limiting beliefs and the stories. We actually get people in circle and ceremony and burn them and it's, you know, really this release of the things that are holding us back. Ooh, burning notes with our negative thoughts. I like that idea. And what else does the program do? The fifth component of the program is around boundaries and saying no. I mean, we are all humans and we thrive in community. And so we all want to be helpful and cooperative and work together for the common good. But sometimes that coupled with the social messaging about women having to be polite and cooperative and, you know, all of those other messaging can can create this system where we really struggle to assert our needs. But we can't assert our needs unless we know who we are, what's anchoring us, what are our values. So that program runs over several weeks. And what's really interesting is that some of this organisational work is done out of the office. Tell us about that. Yeah. So we also get like workforces out in of their physical environment onto country. So we get them out and we look at the what country can teach us about slowing down and regenerating and restoration. We quite simply get them in circle. We sort of strip them of the power and privilege and the titles and accolades and we connect with who they are. We ask them things like, what lights you up? You know, what's the personal practice that you turn to? What are you afraid of? What do you do when we're in uh, a stress response? How does it show up for you? And we we have these really critical conversations about our, our behaviors, our bias and our triggers and how they show up at work and at home. So yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful um, process of learning and unlearning about this human condition that we're all navigating right now. Caroline, tell me about the types of changes that you've seen. You know, I've seen women who have completely avoided conflict their whole entire lives, you know, build the skills and the knowledge to be able to assert their needs in a really constructive and uh, I'd like to say an informed way. We've seen, you know, women being able to assert their 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 skills, their talents, their gifts uh, in a way that's led to promotions. And I think the most important thing that I've seen is that we see people unwire this conditioning that in order to be worthy or of value, you have to be 
overly worked and, you know, you have to hustle and grind and that your um, sense of self is a direct contribution to your outputs, where we do this inner work around the values and identity and, and beliefs. And people realize that actually that idea that I have of myself or that part of my identity that I really strongly associate with actually isn't that important to me. What is important to me is, you know, time with my family or um, getting out on country or having this revelation that the the game is rigged for all of us and that we can choose ourselves and we have permission to choose ourselves because we're worthy of that. To be of service to self allows us to be of service to our community. So it's a it's a reciprocal relationship. Caroline, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Lisa. That was Caroline Kell, founder and managing director of Blackwattle Coaching and Consulting. There's a lot to unpack in this episode, so we'll also include some useful resources on our program page. We made this episode on the unceded lands of the Gadigal and Wurundjeri people. Thanks to This Working Life producer, Rachel Bongiorno, and sound engineer, Tim James. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next time, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.